Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 170, which also happens to be the wheelbase of the largest Sprinter van. Uh, Oh, but that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about an article about why you shouldn't travel. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? We're also going to talk about TPMS, your tire pressure monitoring system, a product review of something I've been using for years and you should consider using too, and a tale from the road involving Argentina. Yes, folks. Welcome back. Thank you very much for tuning in. I uh, I usually have coffee before I do these podcasts. And uh, today, since my van is in the shop for a glow plug problem yet again, I am having a cocktail. So, uh, cheers. Yes, and uh, my uh, cocktail may have an effect on this podcast, but we shall see. But before we get into anything here, I need to address something that's come up that's, well, it's embarrassing and a bit odd, and I'm going to try to do something about it. Apparently, many of you have been hearing ads on my podcast, and some of you have written to me to say, hey, congrats on getting sponsored by whomever, or what is this? And... Well, <laughs> this, is, this is a surprise to me. Uh, I have been able to track down where the ads are coming from. They're coming from Podbean, my host, the company I pay every month to host my podcast. And apparently, long, long, long ago, I opted into some sort of an advertising program. And that's fine. I am okay with advertising. I do spend money to produce this podcast. I actually spend quite a bit of money to produce this podcast. And if I could get a little bit back, well, I think that would be great. However, I have not seen any money from these ads. And apparently, they've gone out thousands and thousands of times some of you report hearing as many as four ads for every podcast and that is so intrusive especially when i'm not the one picking the ads i have no idea what you guys are hearing that honestly i should be getting more money than nothing (laughs) so i looked into podbean and dug in deep to see what's going on and indeed I have been making money from these ads, and it's being held in an account until it reaches a certain amount, and I I guess they'll send me a check or something. But that amount isn't worth it. Bottom line is, they're not paying me enough to annoy you guys this much. (laughs) If that makes any sense. I mean, I'm not willing to annoy thousands of people in order to make $2 a month, or whatever it's going to be. It looks like it may turn out to be as much as $5 a month. Woohoo! Yeah, that's significantly less than the hosting charges. So here's my thought, and uh, this might be a bit forward, but um, hey, I'm going to throw it out there, and you guys can tell me I'm full of it and ignore me or whatever, and we'll see what happens. I have created a Buy Me a Coffee account. Buy Me a Coffee is a site that it's it's like Patreon, but without the monthly subscriptions. You, you basically just say, boy, I like that episode. Here's a couple bucks. Thank you for producing that. It's that kind of a site. It's, it's basically for tips. And if you like this show and you'd like to see it continue, which it probably will, even if you don't send me money, well, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. That's, uh, yeah, two T's, not three, not one. And then toss me a couple bucks. I I hate this. I am not the person you want to be trying to raise money for your organization because I will probably give something away. Yeah, that's it. If I can just get a couple of donations through Buy Me a Coffee, that'll more than offset the money, whatever it might be, that Podbean was going to give me, and that'll be fine. And then you can feel good about removing ads from the podcast, not just for you, but for everybody 
and I'll just keep on making podcasts. And so that'll be the way it is. So again, it's buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. And I have it actually set up so that it will be buy me some diesel, which is kind of the same thing. Although diesel is what's needed to get the show going. Although some days it's also coffee and some days it is also a cocktail. Now, let's talk about this intriguing article I saw. So the New Yorker is an old school publication, right? It's been around forever. It's a magazine. It's read by, you know, people who tend to think very highly of themselves. I mean, it's got the highest journalistic standards and lots of famous names. It's won all kinds of awards. It's quite a bit different from, say, Vice or Insider.com or the kinds of media that younger people might consume. It's known for its long-form writing, so you're not going to get your quick dopamine fix with a five-second article to read here. No, everything takes several minutes, and this one does as well. But this article presents a sentiment that I, well, frankly, I haven't heard very often, and uh, I, I'm not shocked by it, but I find it... Well, I find it in interesting to grapple with. <laughs> and the name of the article kind of tells it all. The name of the article is The Case Against Travel. That's right. Now, at its core, Built to Go, a van life podcast, and van life in general, is about travel. Oh, sure, there are people who live in vans that never go anywhere, and there are people that live in vans that travel only because they have to, not because they want to. But I think the vast majority of us traveling in vans and school buses and Priuses and bicycles and on donkeys or however, they're doing it because of a love of travel. And this article says that it's crap. <laughs> I Again, not shocking, but really interesting. Now, this article was written by... Agnes Collard, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, maybe somebody I could meet and discuss this with someday, who knows? And she starts off with these amazing quotes from people, such as G.K. Chesterton, who wrote that travel narrows the mind, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I named my second son after, who called travel a fool's paradise. <laughs> Uh, Socrates and Immanuel Kant never left their hometowns of Athens and Königsberg, respectively. And then this last quote from a Portuguese writer by the name of Fernando Pessoa, who I admit I am not familiar with. He wrote a book called The Book of Disquiet, and he said this, I abhor new ways of life in unfamiliar places. The idea of traveling nauseates me. Ah, let those who don't exist travel. Travel is for those who cannot feel. Only extreme poverty of the imagination justifies having to move around to feel. Oof. Gut punch. You're traveling because you can't feel. You're in search of something that you can't get just through ordinary life. Therefore, you are impoverished. <laughs> You are diminished. There's something wrong with you because you have wanderlust. What, what a, a contrasting message to everything, basically everything. I, I mean, I live in a world of travel. I've traveled my entire life. I mean, I, the first time I went to a foreign country, I think I was six. I may have been younger. To me, travel is life. In fact, quick side note here, we were asked to write autobiographies in, I think it was the sixth grade, and when I wrote mine, it was just a list of all the places I'd visited, and that was it. And some of the other students were like, 
well, this is like just all your vacations. And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Now the article goes on and it goes on to, you know, obviously justify the stance. This is the New Yorker here, right? This isn't somebody's drunken rant, which this podcast may turn into. No, this is a scholarly person carefully considering this argument and presenting their arguments for it. And they go on to talk about how they went to Abu Dhabi and they went to a Falcon hospital because that's what you do in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and they got their picture taken with a Falcon on their shoulder and well, they have no interest in this. <laughs> they have no interest in falconry. They just did it because that's what you're supposed to do. And well, sure, I've taken trips like that too. So I, I can sort of relate to that. But one of the points she makes that I think is worth drilling down on is that this falconry hospital and this tourism experience doesn't exist because the locals want to share this with the tourists. It exists because the tourists demand it. The tourists are changing the place they're visiting rather than visiting the place. Because if you visit Abu Dhabi as somebody who's not from there, without them catering to you, what you're going to see is a bunch of people going about their lives, probably in different ways than you do. You'll be unable to communicate with them and you will find it very, very difficult. But because the world has grown accustomed to tourism, especially for people of European ancestry, although there's a tradition of tourism among some Asian cultures as well, it's kind of grounding to realize that you're changing the place perhaps more than it's changing you. Now, she goes on to say that there is another aspect of tourism that's interesting, which is uh, she uses the example of the Grand Canyon, which is a place I've never been. And everybody, if everybody is Americans, has an idea of what the Grand Canyon is. We've seen it in movies. We've read about it. You know, it's the Grand Canyon. And uh, those people who have gone to visit it have either found it to live up to their expectations, exceed their expectations, or not be quite what they expected. And it's kind of the only three options. But everybody who goes there who has a positive experience then wants to share that with somebody. And if they do, they won't be experiencing it a second time. They will be focused on the person they brought with them to see that they're having the same experience because it's very important for them to enjoy it just as much as you. Just an interesting thought. And, you know, kind of the same thing with music. You know, if I have a piece of music I like, I, I, I imagine, oh boy, I'd love to share this with somebody so they can get the same joy out of it that I do. But it's not really possible. And I say this as somebody who organizes trips and takes people around the world and... I hope they have the same experience I do. Heck, I hope they have a better experience than I do. But I don't really know that they do. The article doesn't necessarily really get into this, but there's a common expression that says, don't be a tourist, be a traveler. And I, I kind of push back on that a little bit because, well, what's the difference? I take people on cruises, right? And cruising and van life seem like such totally opposite things. How could I possibly enjoy both? And there is a stereotype of the typical American cruise passenger who also could be considered the typical tourist. Don't be like that person, right? Engage the culture you're visiting. Try to learn a little bit of the language. Try the local food. Be very respectful of the culture. You know, if they dress modestly, dress modestly. If they bow instead of shaking hands, bow instead of shaking hands. Where the stereotype of a tourist is somebody who barrels in there expecting everybody to cater to them and then complain when they don't have that specific type of craft beer they're used to getting at home. But like all stereotypes, there's a nugget of truth, but there's also a whole lot of truth that's absolutely missing from that. 
You know, to me, a traveler is somebody who's going from one place to another. That's the goal. You are traveling. You travel to work. You travel for a business meeting. A tourist is focusing on that travel. The travel is the point. And done properly, <laughs> there's that word. Well, done properly, then you are having an experience that will change you not the place you're visiting. And that's the main point of this article. And as the article wraps up, it goes on to say, well, it kind of goes on to refute anything I could say in criticism of the article. I'm just going to quote directly from the article here. If you think that this doesn't apply to you, that your own travels are magical and profound, with effects that deepen your values, expand your horizons, render you a true citizen of the globe, and so on. Note that this phenomenon can't be assessed first personally. Uh, this is me talking again, first personally. <laughs> Excellent use of words. I've never heard them used that way before. But to, to sum that up, it's basically... She is saying that you can't judge for yourself how much your tourism affects you. It's a very bold statement. She goes on to explain that uh, Pessoa, and, uh, and I'm quoting again, Pessoa, Chesterson, Percy, and Emerson were all aware that travelers tell themselves they've changed, but you can't rely on introspection to detect a delusion. They may speak of their travel as though it were transformative, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But will you be able to notice a difference in their behavior, their beliefs, their moral compass? Will there be any difference at all? And then she concedes that travel is fun and that it's enjoyable. But her basic argument is that that's all it is. It's just like going on a roller coaster. It's fun and enjoyable, but not transformative. And finally, she concludes by looking at travel as a way of staving off death. <laughs> Not literally, but the memento mori kind of realization that one day you too will die. Again, <laughs> this article gives me a whole lot to think about. And I just read it this morning. I haven't had really time to ruminate on this, but... I just wanted to present it to you because there's some interesting stuff to think about here. You and I are fellow travelers. We travel either when we can or constantly. Travel's a big part of our lives. And here we have somebody, somebody who apparently is worthy of respect, telling us that we're deluded. Um, I, that brings to mind two questions. One, is it accurate? Are we deluded? Have our travels changed who we are? I certainly think I am the person I am today because of all the travel I've done. And two, if it is a delusion, so what? I mean, so what? And I guess I'll leave it there. So I have a link to the article in the show notes. If you want to find it on your own, it's in the New Yorker. It's called The Case Against Travel, and it's by Agnes Callard. That's C-A-L-L-A-R-D. And it's published in the Weekend Essay section of the New Yorker magazine, published June 24th, 2023. Tech Talk. As I'm recording this, my van is in the shop. 
My favorite place for it to be... No, seriously, when my van's in the shop, it's just like having a loved one in the hospital. It's, uh, it's a horrible ongoing stress and I just am waiting for a phone call or a text message saying hey we found this and this in your van or whatever now my van is there for fairly simple things there's a that stupid glow plug light which I don't know what that is but hopefully it'll be something simple and what I wanted to talk about this week because uh, Kent and I were going back and forth on it on the Facebook group this morning uh, the TPMS light so 10 minutes into my trip last week this light came on on the dashboard it's the classic picture of a flat tire it, that's what that picture is if you didn't realize it it's a radial tire going flat and then um, on my sprinter it came up and said no TPMS in these really oddly drawn words and that basically tells you nothing. If you get that message, you don't know what's failed or what's going on. All you know is there's something wrong with the system that detects pressure in your tires. So prudently, like you should, I stopped and checked all the tire pressures manually and they were all fine. So my new tires were fine. The problem was with the system. Now I have two scanners in my van. One is the blue driver scanner, which is a nice, simple, easy thing that attaches to your OBD2 port and then gives you a readout on your phone. And it's good for telling you like live things, but it's not all that in depth. I also have another scanner that's a professional tool that I plug in. I don't use this while I'm driving, but plugged in, it does have its own TPMS module and I was able to find out that the battery in my right front tire is dead. So backing up a step here, TPMS is the tire pressure monitoring system and most modern cars have this and it's just this thing that tells you that your tire pressures are okay. It's, it's a good thing. It's a safety thing. And you can actually get them for trailers too, which is actually arguably more important because it's much harder to tell if you've got a trailer tire gone flat than one on your vehicle. Now, as someone who has experienced a highway blowout at high speed in a vehicle that didn't have TPMS, I am in favor of this system. But I am not in favor of the way it is implemented. TPMS has little sensors inside your wheels that detect a signal from a device that's mounted inside your tire. Inside your tire, attached to the valve stem where you add air, is this little bit of electronics with a battery that tells how much pressure's in your tire, and it sends that signal to the sensor that's on the inside of the wheel, and then that goes to the computer, and that's where you get your readout. Most vehicles have four tires. If you've got a 3500 series vehicle, you might have six tires. And one of those tires has a flat, let's say. So what does your vehicle do? Well, in the Sprinter, you just get this light of a flat tire. It doesn't tell you which one or what the pressure is or anything like that. More sophisticated vehicles will actually tell you which tire is going flat and what the pressure is. But uh, mine isn't that smart. Instead... <laughs> it'll just put that light on the dash and then disable the system. And so my situation now is that because I have this dead battery in one tire, I can't monitor any of the tires and it's really frustrating and stupid. What do you do in this situation? Well, the only thing you can do is to take the tire off the rim and replace the battery or perhaps the entire sending unit. They're not that expensive and every time you get your tires changed, the installer is supposed to check these things. So... If you have a TPMS light on and you've checked your tire pressures, it is actually completely safe to just ignore it. People my age have drove around for decades without knowing what our tire pressures were. This is a new thing and, well, it's not technically needed. So you can just drive around with the light on. Then when you get new tires, they will go ahead and fix it for you, basically. Now, in my case, 
I cannot stand having that light on the dashboard. It drives me crazy. I keep glancing at the dash and seeing that light and thinking that there's something desperately wrong with my vehicle, which I have reason to think. <laughs> so my van's at the shop and they're going to rotate the tires. And while they're rotating the tires, they're going to check the TPMS and it'll cost me money, but I'll at least have that stupid light on. And no, I'm not quite desperate enough to put the electrical tape on the dashboard just yet. One other thing on TPMS, some cars have a totally different system that uses the anti-lock brake sensor that detects the rotational speed of each wheel and notices when one wheel is traveling at a different speed, which would indicate it had a different air pressure and then throws a light on the dashboard. Now, this system has been criticized for not being as accurate, but uh, I would much prefer that. You're using existing technology, there's much less to brake, much less expense, and uh, geez, I wish my Sprinter had that instead. Tales from the road. So on my way to Antarctica, I had to go to Argentina. And I, I had a great time in Buenos Aires. I really didn't expect to, honestly. Buenos Aires is a big European-style city. And when I say big, it's it's bigger than almost every city in the United States. It's, it's really big. We're talking 30 million people. And I, I'm just not that interested in big European-style cities of late. I, I just, I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> I mean, I live in a big, quote-unquote, European-style city, and I want to see other stuff. So, Buenos Aires was not a big hit on this trip for me. It wasn't one of the places I was excited. Now, having said that, I had a great time at Buenos Aires, and I would love to go back. This is one of those travel things that was transformative, unlike the previous article would have suggested. But I had two experiences, which I found were a little bit odd. <laughs> The first day I was there, I just wandered around. I didn't have a tour. I just wandered around and saw stuff. And I was the, in the Palermo district. And I found this store that my driver had actually recommended. Kind of a small grocery store. Uh, I, I mean, I guess you could call it a bodega, but they, they wouldn't call it that there. It was, it was a grocery store for a neighborhood. You know, not the kind of place you would necessarily drive to, but the kind of place like, you know, maybe a Trader Joe's size of place that had everything, but didn't have a huge variety of everything. And I was very happy to find it. I wanted to get some groceries to bring back to the hotel room, figuring I would make like, you know, sandwiches and stuff and not have to eat out every meal and i wandered in and uh i love visiting foreign supermarkets it's one of my favorite things to do as a tourist <laughs> you can see that article really affected me and so you know i'm taking my time looking over things all the different kinds of bread and such and the store is organized in such a way that you basically make one pass through and then go to the checkouts so uh it's not like an American supermarket where you're wandering around from aisle to aisle and, oh, I forgot the eggs and wander all over the other side of the store. This basically was, you're going to go down this aisle, get what you want, and then check out, and that's it. And, you know, I had no problem with the supermarket. It was great. I found stuff I liked. It was wonderful. But there was this woman who saw me and apparently... I don't exactly know what the deal was, but I don't know if I scared her or threatened her or what... But because we're all walking in the same direction because of the layout of the store, she was always in front of me. And she was this very small woman. I mean, I'm six feet tall. She was maybe four feet tall. So I towered over her. 
but I didn't get, like, very near her or anything. I wasn't, like, looming over her as she looked through the different kinds of rice or anything like that. I was always ten feet away. And we go down the second aisle, and at this point I start to notice that she's doing this, so I hold back, and I take an overly long time looking at pasta sauce, and she stops, and she looks back, and she's, like, trying to make eye contact with me. Now, we have not said a word. I mean, I haven't said a word since I got in the store. And if I did say a word, it would be in English in a place where everyone speaks Spanish. So I really didn't know what was going on. Finally, she leaves the aisle and goes around the corner. And I take my sweet time looking at all the things in this aisle. And then I round the corner and ugh, she's still there. She's halfway down the next aisle. She sees me and once again glares at me. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? But, you know... At this point, I'm like over it. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm going to do my shopping and leave. So I grab my things and I pass her, walking a little bit quickly, not in any threatening way. I wasn't going to knock her over or anything. There was plenty of space for me to go by her. And she shouts something to me in Spanish. Now, despite my 100-day-long streak on Duolingo, I am not a fluent Spanish speaker. I, I, I am not a Spanish speaker at all, in fact. What I am is somebody who can pick up a word here or there in Spanish. <laughs> so I have no idea what she said. So I simply turned to her and said, Lo siento, no hablo español. And then she looked at me and laughed. She laughed and laughed and laughed and put her head down and grabbed my arm and laughed and laughed and laughed and gave me the biggest smile and everything was okay. Although I still don't know what that everything is. I have no idea what this interaction was. And so <laughs> I, I smiled at her and took my groceries and went and checked out and left. Uh, which, by the way, checking out in Argentina as an American is a little weird. You have to show your passport to use a credit card. It's, it's kind of a local thing because of the way they deal with taxes. Uh, anyway, just know that. If you go to Argentina, do some research because things are a little different there. Anyway, I chalked that up to just a strange experience in the supermarket. I don't know if she thought I looked like somebody or I, I will never know. But then it happened again. <laughs> So then later on in the day, I decided to go to a real supermarket, as, uh, as Americans would consider, even though it's arguably less real. I think most of the people in Buenos Aires actually shop in the first place I went, not the second. But the second place I went would look very familiar to an American. It was this massive supermarket. In fact, this was bigger than any supermarket I've ever seen in the U.S. It took up the entire top floor of a shopping mall. And it was, it was beautiful and clean, and, uh, you know, I wandered around for a bit, but it was honestly overwhelming. But I picked up a few things and, uh, you know, went up to the front where the registers were and saw an open register and went in. And this lady ran up to me and tapped on my shoulder and said something sternly to me in Spanish. And... Again, I'm like, what is going on here? Um, you know, I, I wasn't wearing a shirt that said anything offensive. I, I have no idea. And I turned around to her and said, Lo siento, yo no hablo español. And she looked at me and smiled and said, Correcto! And then ushered me into the line. What does it mean? <laughs> what was going on? Well, the first interaction, I don't think I will ever know. But now that it's been 
six, seven months since this has happened, I think I figured out what happened in the second interaction. Although, again, it's just a guess. I think this supermarket managed lines the way that some American stores do, like Marshall's, for example, where you have one line that feeds into all the registers. Everybody waits in this one line, and then when a register opens, they go to that open register. I think that somehow I missed that line and accidentally just went to the register, essentially cutting this woman off. I think. I think that's what I did. It makes sense, and heck, it's the closest I'm ever going to come to an answer. But yeah, travel isn't transformative. Hmm. A place to visit. So as part of my trip to the Rocky Mountain Star Stair, my buddies Hal and Bruce invited me to go check out a feature called the Crestone Crater. And it is in, unsurprisingly, Crestone, Colorado. Now, Crestone, Colorado is a rather strange little town, or maybe maybe it's not so strange for people in Colorado, but for me it's kind of strange. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's north of the Great Sand Dune National Park. You have to travel a lot of miles to get there. And it's in a part of the state that's known as the Mexican Land Grants, which I don't quite understand, and I will Wikipedia after I record this. But it's an actual little town there with, you know, houses and businesses. And there is a gas station and market there. There's only one that I could find. And thankfully, they had diesel because I really needed diesel. And when you go into the store, well, it's kind of a hippie store, if you know what I mean. They sell lots of incense and bulk goods and organic this and that and all these things. And it's all really high priced. It's kind of like a Whole Foods on steroids. And I was completely not surprised by this because I knew that Crestone was one of these kind of communities, kind of like a miniature Sedona, except that this place is largely influenced by Hindu spirituality, although only kind of. I didn't get the sense that the people I was surrounded with were Hindu, but there is definitely a lot of Hindu stuff in the area. There is a ziggurat that you can climb up, and that's a type of pyramidal tower and you can walk up it and then there are all these stupas you can visit and a stupa is kind of a a worship site in buddhism and you know there's usually something there to focus on some kind of a relic and there's a number of those there's basically all kinds of spirituality going on here and me being a non-spiritual person this stuff is always a little hard to understand but it's pretty And it's harmless, as far as I can tell. And it's something to take in. So if you're looking for this kind of a place, well, Crestone, Colorado has it for you. And if nothing else, it's an absolutely beautiful place to visit with lots of hiking and such. But back to the crater. I had gone out the night before and spent the night at the trailhead of a bunch of hiking areas called Liberty, which again is just north of the Sand Dune National Park. And you're allowed to camp there for two weeks, so I figured I'm allowed to park my vehicle there for two weeks, and then I figure, well, I'm allowed to camp inside my vehicle for two weeks. That's my logic. Someone come tell me I'm wrong. And I spent a lovely night there waiting for Helen Bruce to show up the next day, and then we explored the crater. So the Crestone Crater is a little bit of an anomaly. If you look on Google Earth for Crestone Crater, uh, you may not find it. But if you look at Crestone, Colorado, and then go south, you will find this crater in the earth or sand or whatever you call it. It's not quite regolith, but it's not far off of regolith. You will see this crater. And, well, 
craters generally mean something created the crater, whether it be a volcano or somebody digging something out or bomb or a meteorite. And the thought was that a meteorite had landed here and created this crater. It definitely had that crater shape. Now, people have studied this crater. The first people that studied it in the 1960s determined that the crater was aeolian, which means it was created not by aliens, but by wind. Aeolian meaning wind-derived. And it's just basically a hollowed-out spot created by the wind. But a more recent study found density anomalies where the ground under the crater was significantly more dense than the crater rim around it, as though something had impacted there. So what's the answer? Well, I don't know for sure. This certainly isn't my area of study. I don't actually think I have an area of study. But the three of us talked about it, and, well, I think Bruce was the one who came up with a theory that, well, it sounds pretty good. One piece of data to know is that the floor of the crater is actually at the same height of the floor of the valley. So the sides of the crater are built up around it rather than it being a hole in the ground. And those sides are made out of sand. And if you remember, this is just north of the Great Sand Dune National Park. So Bruce's theory is that these sand dunes came together, and this is where a bunch of them actually joined, and left a hole. But it was a very stable hole. It's exactly in the right place for the wind currents and such, so that when the sand dunes moved and now exist further south, this bit remained. And honestly, that kind of explains all the data, because that denser ground that they found at the bottom of the crater could actually just be the valley floor which would, of course, be denser than sand dunes encircling it. Anyway, it was, it was an interesting trip, and uh, if you're looking for something a little bit offbeat to visit in Colorado, and I am aware that Colorado has endless things to visit, well, go ahead and check out Crestone, Colorado. They have diesel, they have friendly people, and, uh, well, I did have one encounter, but I will tell you about that another time. Resource Recommendation now, there is a YouTube channel called Technology Connections that many of you may have encountered. The host, Alec, is a bit of uh, an uber nerd. I'm not even sure nerd is the right word because he's not so much into the Marvel Universe as he is into technology and explaining it in incredible depth, but in a way that the layperson can understand it. And I've grown to really enjoy his show. But I warn you, it's not for everybody. And this episode that I'm about to recommend is an hour-long explanation of the workings and bizarreness of a particular refrigerator. Now, if you're wondering why I would recommend this to you, oh van life dweller, it's because the refrigerator he does this with, a Galan's kind of dorm fridge, works exactly the same as the 12-volt compressor fridge that may be in your van. Certainly is the same as the one in my van. In fact, it is that type of fridge. It's exactly that kind of fridge. If you want to learn a bit about refrigeration and how your fridge works that's in your van, its pros and cons definitely watch this. He explains the entire thing. And I learned a bunch of stuff. I knew a bunch of it already, but I learned one important thing that I was wrong about all this time. And that is that those little battery powered fans don't actually work in this kind of a fridge because of the way the thermostats work. I thought that was very interesting. Now, 
the older, the two-way and three-way refrigerators that use propane, there is an argument to still use fans in those. But if you have a 12-volt compressor fridge, you may not want to use fans. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. But if you want to search YouTube for it, it's called This Goofy Fridge Has a Really Clever Design. It's also kind of terrible. (laughs) And the channel is called Technology Connections. Hey, give it a watch. I really enjoy it. You might not, and that's okay. But again, this is a great way to learn exactly how your fridge with its cyclopentane actually works and how you can get the most out of it. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 170. I didn't even get to the product review because I ran out of time. So, yeah, maybe the little bit of a cocktail makes me talk longer. I don't know. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. And until next time, remember the words of Socrates. Philosophy is a preparation for death. For everyone else, there's travel. <laughs>